Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Um, buying stuff online has become very, very popular, particularly during COVID lockdowns. The biggest pro with buying online is the convenience of it all, and often the prices are lower for the same product that you find in a store. But one of the biggest downsides with buying online is getting nothing like what you expect based on the image and description of a product sometimes. Here are some hilarious online shopping fails where we see a significant mismatch between what buyers expected and what they actually received. The first one. Do not buy veneers online. Next, talk about being misled with this one here. The next one, now that's a scam, right? Mini wipes. Next, oops, Uh, two left-sided shoes. Maybe you didn't work that out. Next, another scam. Never buy rings online. It's how small it is. Uh, the next one is quite bizarre. Look at the dustpan. It's much bigger than she is, or almost as big as she is. Next, rip off. What a rip off. And next is another rip off a face mask. <laughs> As we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, verses, 20, uh, verses 12 to 27, Jesus is having to address a huge mismatch of expectations his disciples have of him as he heads towards Jerusalem. He's still in Jericho at this stage, a mere 30 k's or a day's walk from Jerusalem. Jesus marched from Galilee to Jerusalem, which, way back, uh, which began way back in Luke 9.51, is almost completed. His followers who recognize him and who believe that he is the Lord and Savior, Messiah, are getting very excited about this. Why? They believe that the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem is going to trigger the immediate establishment of God's kingdom, physical kingdom on earth. They expect Jesus, upon arrival in Jerusalem, to raise an army, overthrow Rome, conquer the world, lead the nation of Israel into a new golden age of military might and economic prosperity. Even after his death and resurrection, this was their expectation. In Acts 1, verse 6, we read, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you going to, uh, at this time, Restore the kingdom of Israel. Now, Jesus knows that the reality that is, go- that is going to happen is so different from their expectations. And not for the first time, Jesus attempts to reset expectations by telling them a parable that gives a broad brush of what will actually happen and what he expects of them. And here's the parable, starting from verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Or in the King, King James Version, occupy until I come. 
But his subjects hated him, not his servants, but the citizens, hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had done with it, what, what, what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, uh, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant. His master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second one came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Verse 20, then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man or a hard taskmaster. You take out what you do not put in and reap what you do not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I do not put in and reaping what I do not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Verse 24, then he said to those standing by, take, this, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, it's not fair. He has already ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for, one, for the one who has nothing, even what they will have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Okay, that's the sermon for today. I'd like you to go back and uh, read up the passage and do some reflection. We're going to have a last song and have morning tea. I wish I could say that. What's verse 27 about? I mean, there are Bible verses where you go, I wish they weren't there. And verse 27 would have to be one of them, even if it was a parable. Why did Jesus use such harsh language? Words that you could not possibly, you could not imagine coming out of Jesus' mouth. But yet, it came out of Jesus' mouth. More on this later. But the first part of the parable has historical precedent. King Herod the Great traveled to uh, Rome around 40 BC to have kingship, to have his kingship recognized from Mark Anthony. Before he died, he appointed his son Archelaus to succeed him. Like his father before him, he had to go to Rome to seek Caesar's endorsement. But many Jews did not like him because of his decision to massacre 3,000 Jews during one Passover. So they sent a delegation of 50 men to Rome to voice their opposition to the succession plan to Augustus. It worked. Augustus prompt compromised by allowing Archelaus to rule, but only with a title ethnarch, a slightly lesser position than that of a king. In the parable, Jesus is the nobleman who travels to a distant country to be king. This is a reference to Jesus' departure into heaven after his death and resurrection where he would sit at the Father's right hand. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. That God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. In other words, Jesus will triumph in Jerusalem, not by riding into Jerusalem on a white horse as a military leader, but as the greatest servant of all, laying down his life on the cross to die in our place for our sins. The enemy is not Rome. The enemy is sin and death, and that's why he's going to go to Jerusalem to overcome. In doing so, his kingdom will be established, but only in part. Its fullness will only occur when he returns in the distant future, when he will rule in absolute power and glory. In the meantime... The nobleman's servants are to be actively advancing his business. They are to be actively engaging his interests. By using one mina, he gives to each one of them. Now, one mina was worth about four months of wages for a worker. The servants represent everyone who follows Jesus. Anyone who follows Jesus. Upon his return... Each servant is asked to give an account for what they've done with the resources that he has entrusted to them. For the sake of keeping the story compact, Luke only records the responses of three servants. The first servant reports a very impressive gain of 1,000%. The master commends him for his uh, faithfulness his trustworthiness, and gives him 10 cities to look after. The second servant reports a lesser but still an impressive gain of 500%. He too is commended, but he's given five cities to oversee. And now to the main exchange in the parable between that of the nobleman and the third servant. The third servant simply returns that one mina he was given, having kept it safe using a cloth. And he then blames the nobleman for his disobedience. He accuses him of being a hard taskmaster and an exploiter who takes from others what he does not work for, and that he has placed him in a no-win situation. If he earns the money, the nobleman will take it. If he loses the money, he'll be held responsible. So why bother doing anything with Amina? The nobleman's gracious and generous response to the first two servants show clearly that the third servant does not know the nobleman's character at all. The servant's excuse becomes the ground for the nobleman's rebuke and condemnation of him. If he was such a hard taskmaster, then why didn't the servant at the very least deposit the money with a bank to gain interest? There's no risk there. He could have at least done that. See, the servant is trying to justify what cannot be justified. The master, in response, instructs the mina that he has be taken away and be given to the first 
servant. Answer! The crowd responds. The master cared less about fairness than faithfulness and obedience. Besides, what's unfair? None of the servants ended with less than what they started out. The unfaithful, disobedient servant started with nothing, and he ended up with nothing. Who does the third servant represent? Is he a true believer, a follower of Jesus, who has simply failed the test of faithfulness and obedience and loses his reward? Some think so, but I would put, put it to you that that's not the case at all. Because of the master's declaration, very emphatic declaration, that the third servant is wicked. I put it to you that the third servant is giving the nobleman his middle finger. Up you. I'm not going to do what you ask of me. Because the third servant, for him, his relationship with the nobleman is a relationship of convenience. Which he's only there purely for what he can get out of it. It's purely for his benefit. And so what the nobleman was asking of him was of no benefit to him. And because of that, he's not going to do what the nobleman asked. His relationship with the nobleman is based purely on his terms. He calls the shots. He dictates all of the terms. If it suits him, he'll do it. If it doesn't suit him, he's not going to do a thing. That's the attitude of the third servant. I believe the third servant is the same individual described, or the same group of people described by the Apostle Paul in Titus 1, verse 16, in which he said, the third servant, or the third servant types, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. There's a mismatch between what they say and how they live. They're detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. This third servant is, is what we might refer to as cultural Christians. They wear the label Christian, but the label has more to do with their family background. They were born into a Christian family, the social environment, where they were born and or their upbringing, rather than the personal conviction that Jesus is truly Lord and Savior. They're not in a personal relationship with him. Even the famed atheist Richard Dawkins refers to himself as a cultural Christian because he appreciates some of the ceremonial and philanthropic aspects of Christianity. But you could hardly say that he's a follower of Jesus. He's not. In other words, the third servant was condemned not for the absence of fruit, which many people read that into the parable and think, oh, if I don't have fruit, I'm going to be in serious trouble. No, the third servant was condemned not for the absence of fruit, but the absence of repentance and faith in Jesus. This parable then carries a strong warning to all of us, calling us to examine whether our relationship with God is cultural or real. And personal. This parable warns us and calls us to examine our relationship with God, whether it's cultural 
whether it's real and personal. Now to the nobleman's relationship with the citizens. Back in verse 14, they, remember, they hate the nobleman and they don't want him to be king. They represent the Jewish leadership, but also anyone and everyone who openly defies Jesus as Lord and Savior. What will happen to them? Using a common scene when a conquering king had been defied, Jesus tells us he will bring judgment against them. The shocking scene shows us that responding to Jesus as Lord and Savior is a life and death situation. But far from gleefully dispensing judgment against those who openly defy him, Jesus will do so with great weeping and with great broken heart as we will see next week. But let me draw out two themes from the parable. The first one is this, everyone is accountable to God. Both Christians and non-Christians will be held accountable by Jesus. Our decisions have consequences, not only in this life, but in the one to come. When Christ returns, he will require each person to render an account of their lives on earth. People will either receive a verdict of condemnation or verdict of acquittal. And this will be based completely on whether they defiantly reject and rebel against him like the Pharisees or willingly and lovingly submit to him as Lord and Savior like Zacchaeus. Remember, this parable comes right after Jesus announced that God's salvation has come, had come to Zacchaeus. So if you're listening to me today in person or online and you've not made the decision like Zacchaeus did to put his trust in Jesus, to put your trust in Jesus for your salvation, it is not too late to make what is definitely the most important decision in your life. The notion of divine judgment is not popular nor comfortable even for many Christians and for understandable reasons. How, we ask, can we reconcile the idea of a gentle, loving, kind, and compassionate God as it is revealed in Jesus with the prospect that some will receive a verdict of condemnation for him? They just seem irreconcilable. I think Charles Darwin's words captures our struggles well, the internal conflict within us very well. He writes... I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For, for if so, the plain language of the biblical text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, my brother, and almost all of my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. While it is very attractive, and tempting to do away with the idea of God's divine judgment, it is worth pointing out that it was the Lord Jesus himself, the one who was so full of compassion for the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He was the one who spoke very frequently about God's divine judgment. Why was that? Why did he belabor the point on God's divine judgment? 
Scott Saul's explanation is very helpful. I quote, It is too simple to merely say that our God is a God of love and nothing else. For love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. If there is no judgment, then there is no hope for a slave, a rape victim, a child who has been abused or bullied, or people have been slandered or robbed or had their dignity stolen. If nobody is called to account before a cosmic judgment seat for violence and oppression, then the victims have not received justice. The victims will never see justice. We need a God who gets angry. We need a God who gets angry. Angry against sin. Angry against injustice and oppression. We need a God who will protect his kids, who will once and for all remove bullies and perpetrators of evil from his playground. Brothers and sisters, God's love and God's judgment go hand in hand. You cannot split the two apart. God's judgment is as real as God's love. Lest anyone pushes back and gets self-righteous with me and say, well, I can see how murderers, rapists, pedophiles, really bad people should be punished. But I'm not one of them. I pay my taxes. I do good. I volunteer. I give. I help. You can say that I'm a good Samaritan from time to time. My grandmother, he, he, she, she was a decent lady. But yeah, the pedophiles, yeah, they should all, they're, they're scums. They deserve everything thrown at them. But for most of us, we're good, good people. But listen to God's damning verdict in Romans 3. That there is no one righteous. No one. Not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We are all guilty and stand condemned before God for our sin. Unless we are rescued. God's amazing love for us. But also his commitment, absolute commitment to justice meant that he had to send his son to take the punishment for our sins that was justly ours on the cross so that we could be spared from his righteous judgment. And that is why rejecting God's gift of redemption is such an affront to God because it is like saying to God, I have done nothing wrong to require your rescue. I will not be held accountable, least of all, by you. I will be held accountable by me. I'm only accountable to me. See, people don't see that. People think, oh, it's so unfair for God to judge people because they don't believe him. No, it's more than that. It's much more than that. It's because of our sin. The cross makes no sense, brothers and sisters, if we do away with the notion of God's judgment. At the cross, God's perfect love and justice come together in perfect harmony. 
Jesus talked a lot about God's divine judgment because he longs for people to turn to him and never have to face God's judgment. For those who belong to Christ, we will also be held accountable by Jesus too. But it's a different kind of accountability. I did speak about this on March the 26th, so you can go to our website and and, uh, listen to that message if you haven't. But the text today demands that I do so again. The key point that I made in that sermon was, while we're not saved by good works, we have been saved for good works. Let me underscore in no uncertain terms that these are works done not in order to bring us into right relationship with God, but as the result of being put in a right relationship with God through faith alone in Christ, the gift of God's free grace. Such works are hugely important to God because according to the parable that we've been looking at, we will be called into account for those works, for how we've engaged his interests, for how we have advanced his business until he returns. Or as I said earlier in the King James Version, how we've occupied until he returns. To occupy until he returns is not a self-indulgent, passive, or fearful posture. It's quite the opposite. It is a call to active, loving, and obedient service to God and his purpose on earth. And one of God's overarching purpose is distilled in verse 10, just before he tells the parable. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Whatever else we do, this is our overriding purpose for our exist, of our existence. But at the same time, we cannot engage and further his interests without his help. So Jesus, like the nobleman, entrusts us with his resources. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can only receive these resources as gifts and use it. But note how every single is given the same number of resources of one mina. So it's not talking about our talents or our gifts. I don't believe anyway. I, I can only think of two resources of God that I'm aware of, that all of us have equal access to in equal measure. The first is the Spirit of God, and the second is the Word of God. In Acts 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in in Romans 1, verse 16, the apostle Paul speaking, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. See, all of us have been given amina. We've been given access, full access, 24-7 access to the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. He lives in us. The power by which we live the Christian life comes not from us, but from the Holy Spirit. 
the power by which we engage in the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people to God, comes not from us, but from the Holy Spirit. And then we have access to the Word of God in digital form and hard copy. The Word of God that changes lives, that brings hope and healing. We have access to that, do we not? Two resources we have in equal measure. And one day God is going to say, what have you done? What have you done with my word that I've placed in your hands? What have you done? Ooh, I've kept it safe. I've still kept my Bible in its original condition. It's all perfect. I've not underlined it. I didn't want to desecrate it. It's the original copy. What have you done with my gift? The third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit. Have you worked with him? Have you followed his lead? Have you followed his prompting? Have you done what I've asked of you through the presence of the Holy Spirit? You can't say, I don't know what you want from me. He's in you. He's speaking to you. He's talking to you. He's working in you. He wants to work in you and through you. What are you going to say? But mark my words, there will be a conversation. It's very clear. Not just in this parable, but right throughout the New Testament teaching. God is going to have a conversation with each one of us. Think ahead. What's that kind of conversation is going to be like? He will call each one of us into account for how we've occupied until he returns. Finally, the other thing to note from the parable is evidently what we do here is a test and preparation for future responsibilities, not just in this life, but the one after. Like an apprenticeship, like we're serving a probation. It's a big step up from being responsible for MENA to being responsible for cities, don't you think? So what's that about? I don't know what our next life will be like, but I'm certain we will not be sitting around strumming a harp, playing board games, or singing kumbaya. So for those of you who fear that version of life in heaven, be assured that's not going to happen. I mean, what are we going to do for eternity? <laughs> I believe that life on earth is a preparation for a next life. There will be responsibility. I don't know what that looks like. Some will be given charge of 10 cities. What's that? Five cities. What's that? What's that going to look like? But I'm looking forward to it. So I want to work with God and submit to him and say, Lord, yes, teach me to be faithful with what little you give me today and grow my capacity for greater responsibility. Grow my capacity for faithfulness. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.